it spicy? <laughs> My salad was not spicy. Kentucky burgers weren't spicy. The mushrooms were smoky, though. The mushrooms were smoky? Mm-hmm. It's about liquid smoke on them. Uh, my neighbor just pulled in. Gross. Yeah, I know. You can hear just a little bit where I'm shaking my desk because I'm an idiot. Oh my God. I'm glad this isn't a video podcast because of this uh a the the ceiling in this room in general makes me angry. Um and there are exposed wires, but there are exposed wires just above my head in the picture. <laughs> I mean there's an open ceiling tile above my head, so oh I didn't even notice that actually. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of behind that shelf. I just haven't I, moved that one back yet. I did call out my open wires in class today because I was like apparently for some reason I was the first person that zoomed in mm-hmm. and so it was my professor in the studio waiting for students to come into the studio that are physically in the class and then waiting for us to zoom in if we're distance students and <laughs> we start talking for a second and we're laughing about she just bought a house too so we're like house ownership in a pandemic and we were talking about this this because i said uh your exposed wires i said honestly we almost set the kitchen on fire messing with that once so i just haven't you had to bring that up i didn't say you did technically you didn't technically my dad and i about (laughs) set my kitchen on fire started that process yeah (laughs) but it's because the wiring in this house is not that it's bad per se like i think it's up to code it's just like dumb it's old and then people tried to do it themselves but like people who didn't know what they were doing because when my dad looked at it he goes why (laughs) just like why (laughs) that's why we had to put in a new box Can we just collectively sigh? Yeah, I'd like to. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's fun the the way that that class that I was talking about starts. She, if you're in the class physically, and I do this sometimes with my classes, to try to separate yourself from the world that's going on right now, mm-hmm. you stand and you're in the circle, which is like a very theater thing. Like, we can make circles really well. Are you going to zip, zap, zorp the pandemic away? We're not zip, zap, zorping. But it's zip zap zop, first of all. <laughs> but, zip zap zop the pandemic away. Yeah. But um no, you you stand, you take a big deep breath in together, and there's a you like a a unison clap. Everyone like counts down and they clap together, and that clap signals like the beginning of class. We can let everything else out, like block everything else away, which I feel like if I was physically in the class, like in Idaho. It would be mm-hmm. easier. Yeah. Whereas here, I'm like, God, am I going to have to answer an email while I'm in this class? While I'm presenting my stage kiss? You just don't? Yeah, I, I have a hard time with that. Well, yes, we all do. <laughs> I'm a Taurus. 
<laughs> well, it's the. It's also what I saw today. So, of course, WandaVision, the quote about what is grief but love persevering? Yes. Sport. What is March 2021 but March 2020 persevering? Stop it. Do not do that. <laughs> I can't deal with the thought of living through this again like that way. I just, I, you know what I mean? Like, I'm going to get the shot on Friday. I'm just excited. Yeah, vaccines. Yay, vaccines. Yes, so I'm vaccinated. You're half vaccinated. I'm half vaccinated. Jeremy will be half vaccinated. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited, okay? I We're a vaccinated it. podcast. <laughs> we'll, we'll be a vaccinated podcast, yes. And I don't... You I'm can trust like, us. We got our shots. <laughs> and I just don't like... Yeah, I just... I want to get them, and I want to get them out to as many people as possible. And also... Did you read the thing today that said that it is very likely that we will have enough doses for all adults in the United States by May? Ooh, that's faster. Yeah. They, is that because of the thing between like Merck and Johnson and Johnson? Yes. I think that it's in the new partnership where they're like, well, hey, we have another shot, which isn't as effective, but like it's another shot and mm -hmm. whatever. So um basically it because of this new strategic partnership they were able to move that timeline up by two months right which is super exciting yeah i heard something cool today and uh, the reason a lot of people are having bad reactions to the second dose is because they is because they haven't their body doesn't know what it is yet oh yeah right? yeah absolutely but there are people that are having a bad reaction to the first dose because they may have been asymptomatic before. Oh, yeah. So they've had it within the three-month period before, mm -hmm. which is where you're going to have a bad reaction. And But you just didn't know you had it. And how would you? Unless you're just getting tested, like, every week. And some people yeah. are, but, like, in a lot of places, that's not financially feasible. Right. So it's weird to think about, like, you could have a bad reaction, and you'll find out. And I was having that conversation today with somebody, because... I was basically just like, you don't know if you're going to have a bad reaction. And I, and I know that a lot of people, and I this is valid, um, that they know, like everyone that they know that's gotten it has had a bad reaction. But that for means me, they never had COVID, which is good. Yeah. I was like, for me, it's like, then I, I don't care. I'll get, I'll have a bad reaction a little bit and go on. It's just like when you get the flu shot and you're down for a while, if you, if you have a reaction to it, I've never had a reaction to the flu shot, but. <laughs> I just, the shot and having a few days of like, <clears throat> seem like a good trade-off for ending a global pandemic, or at least mitigating it to a massive degree. Yep. As Dolly <laughs> said, because when you're dead, it's too late. <laughs> yes, Dolly. Cool. Awesome. You ready to talk some ghosties? Yeah, will you turn your mic up a little bit? can't turn it up anymore it's it's all the way up it's up much louder now is that better yeah that's better okay we got new mics so we're still learning yeah <laughs> i'm just a very loud person and i want to make sure we can hear doug too because otherwise it's just going to be me screaming <laughs> oh it's most of the time i am not always screaming hmm 
questionable. It's not questionable. It's the reality. Yeah, yeah. Who goes first? <laughs> you. Everyone just like clicked off right then. <laughs> I don't blame them. I would do. <laughs> Sorry, that was. Well, guys, it's been great. This, we've had a lot of fun with the podcast, but. But. <laughs> but Jeremy cannot control his bodily noises. Well, have you met me? Unfortunately. Okay. Um, it's either me or you, but I don't think. Uh, did I go first? Last well, week? Who else would it be? It would be the ghost that lives in my house that you saw last week, <laughs> or heard, or whatever. I thought I wasn't allowed to talk about it. Mm, I'm accepting it. <laughs> I'm accepting the ghost. He lives here now. Okay. Well, I can go for. Well. Wait, you said your short story is a little shorter. I think it's a little bit shorter, yeah. So do you want me okay, to go first then? Go first. Okay. Go first. Um, so wait, I gotta I have to click over away from the, the video so that I can actually see what I'm doing. So and I was very hesitant because I was like, have we done this already? Because I just think we have. But I couldn't find it on any of our episodes. I am going to do Flagler College. We haven't done it yet. We haven't, and we've been there, which is why I was like, ooh, this is this will be fun, right? Yeah, we've literally been there. Um, so we're gonna travel down to St. Augustine, Florida to go to Flagler College, which is a private liberal arts college in St. Augustine, and it was founded in 1968, currently offers 33 undergraduate majors and one master's program. So it's very like something I'm very accustomed to. <laughs> It's like a destination college. It is a destination college. And we'll talk a little bit about that. <laughs> so some of the basic info founded in 1968, the campus comprises 19 acres of St. Augustine. We walked all through it. Um, mm -hmm. And the centerpiece of which is the Ponce de Leon Hotel. No reaction. Mm, not yet. <laughs> Literally doesn't care. Um, I'm like, ooh, I've been there. Yes, it is on the, the National uh, Register of Historic Places, which is super fun. Uh, but let's look backwards a little bit before we talk about any of the hauntings. And some of this came from Wikipedia. Some of it came directly from the uh, flagler.edu <laughs> website. Mm -hmm. um, and some of it came from oldcityghost.com. And it doesn't have an author. It just says, posted by blogger. <laughs> I was okay. like, okay, well, I guess you don't get credit. Well, in turn, they paid in coffee. Yeah, exactly. So some of it is paraphrased from there, and some of it I'm just going to go over and read those quotes because they're quotes from people's haunting experiences. So, okay. sorry, the coffee is trying to come out of me at 8.30 at night. <laughs> Ew. So first, uh, we know that the college's namesake was Henry Flagler. Um, and he used St. Augustine as a winter home. In 1879, Flagler's wife fell sick, and their doctors advised him to take her down to Florida to let the sea air heal her. That's what everyone did back then. I mean, they really thought if they went down, because the temperature's different, um, it's a more uh, even climate, that mm -hmm. she would do better. Well, she didn't. She died, uh, Mary Flagler died in 1881. Eek, sorry. 
But Henry, however, had already decided by that point to stay in St. Augustine because he fell in love with the area. And he kind of fell in love with it because it wasn't uh, developed at all. It was very wild looking. Still which kinda he, is. Still kind of is, but he, he fell in love with it for this. Now, we don't have to worry about him for too long, though, because he wasn't single for very long after she died. Um, he was married two years later in 1883 to Ida Flagler. I think Ida is the right name. I always get it a little backwards. We'll get to her. <laughs> um, but we only really care about this guy somewhat for the story, but also because he was the money bags visionary that was like, we're going to colonize or develop <laughs> this area um, into a sort of tourist attraction and a destination for wealthy northerners who are trying to escape the cold. And yes, okay. colonize. Also, you said the money bags and all I pictured was the Monopoly guy. <laughs> yep. I love it. Um, so thus, since he was like all about developing this area into like this big destination, he decided to build the Ponce de Leon Hotel. Now, Thomas Edison is apparently a big part of the story. Uh, he was he provided DC current for them, uh, like the the things to do it, and that's mm -hmm. how they powered it was with his stuff. But uh, I kind of hate Thomas Edison, so we're gonna gloss over him. Hey, a he was bit. definitely like a butt. Oh, he was awful. Like you can say ass. <laughs> That wasn't what I was going to say, but okay. Oh, well, yeah. Well, he was, and I just, I don't know. See, that that paints a certain picture of this place for me, that it's like Henry Flagler, who's very clearly like a kind of a colonizer, um, you know, coming from the north, we're going to tame the savage. Oh, he was 100% a Republican. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but then we've got Thomas Edison, who I just don't love because he was fighting at the time with the, the Westinghouse, Nikola Tesla, that whole thing. So it's a, there's a lot. Electrified an elephant. Yes. He literally killed animals to prove that like AC wasn't safe, which is stupid, but yep. it's anyway. So that was a whole big deal. It was revolutionary in that it had electricity in this area, which was like, Ooh, a whole hotel with electricity. They wouldn't, people wouldn't even touch the light switches. <clears throat> They were scared, oh my God. which like, I mean, I'd, I'd be scared of anything that Edison touched too, but why do I have such a deep seated hate for that man? I hate Thomas Edison. And I, this is not the first time I've talked about not liking this man. I just don't like him. <laughs> anyway, very so the odd hotel, thing to hate. do what? It's a very odd, like hate to harbor. <laughs> I don't know why. Every time I read about him, I'm like, you didn't actually come up with half your ideas. Do like you stole people... them from your essentially your interns <laughs> and put slapped your name like on it. Like modern business. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, the hotel was built and it was opened in 1888 to wild success. So much success that they actually had to build multiple other hotels and resorts to like accommodate the amount of people that were coming to St. Augustine. Now it finally closed in 1967. So it had a pretty pretty good run there long. <laughs> it's a nice um, long run. yeah that's a long run it, it served many purposes it had a it was a big thing in the civil war because it was like a coast guard thing um which i think we saw when we went on our tour mm -hmm. some of those different places so 
1967, it closed and a year later reopened as the flagship uh, centerpiece for mm -hmm. Flagler College, this brand new college named after the man who built or sort of built the Ponce de Leon Hotel. So there's our history of what we're looking at in terms of the college itself. But um, one of the things that I want to point out here is that we're going to hear some weird stories. <laughs> Don't we always? Yes, but these are just firsthand accounts is what the, the way that they're kind of given to us. Some of them are anyway. So... Um, Here's the first one. This comes from a freshman student. When I was a freshman, I lived in the dorms one night while I was sleeping, which we should say to the dorms. They mean the hotel. Oh, yeah. Like the hotel serves as a as a, a residence hall for this college. You can say dorm. It's okay. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm just it's a whole thing to me that this this hotel that is also the centerpiece of the college is a is a dorm like it's not just a, a an, an admin building or something so one night admin building do what it is part admin building though. yes but the fact that an admin building and a dorm are the same place is kind of weird to me mm -hmm. anyway so this girl says that one night while i was sleeping my roommate said that she saw someone standing at the foot of my bed in all black I wore a lot of black clothes, so she assumed it was me and tried to get my attention. She said mm -hmm. that the figure didn't move, didn't react to her talking. She just kept looking at me. And from that moment forward until I moved out of the dorms, this lady in all black just stood in the corner across from my bed. She never bothered me. She never made anything happen. But she always stared at me when I was sleeping and falling asleep at night. Thank you. <laughs> I was waiting right. for a reaction. The reaction was literally just, no, thank you. No, thank you. Like, no go see bedtime stories, please. But this hotel has actually been haunted for much longer than just the time that it was a, uh, than now when it, since the sixties, when it became a, a college. So we've got this first story that comes from this idea that Flagor was a, strange sort of guy and he had his own uh, religious beliefs and practices oh boy so when he died he ordered that all of his properties would open their windows and doors he was afraid of being trapped in one of his constructions <laughs> okay mary winchester I, I mean very mary winchester but so all of them obeyed the overlord except you guessed it flagler college Wait, when a janitor, did he die? <laughs> a, oh, I don't know, actually. When did Henry Flagler die? Because he was pretty old if he was still around in the 1960s. He died. No, he died in 1913. So it must have been back when this was still a hotel. Oh, no okay, one did okay. it. Um, but a janitor closed the doors and windows while Flagler's funeral was in full swing. And they say that this action trapped Flagler's ghost inside the Cherish building and that he is the apparition that some people see when they're around campus. I don't know. I mean, I tried to take a bunch of pictures when we were on that ghost tour to yeah. see if I could, like, 
catch a ghosty, but I love that we started this podcast like this is the first time we've ever been like ghosties. <laughs> also, not. can you imagine thinking you're going to turn into a ghost, but not thinking, oh, I can just go through that door or window? No, like that's the thing. Like, <laughs> ghosts don't, oh, it's a whole thing, but apparently he really believed that. <laughs> yeah, also, unrelated. Did you just hear bow shake? No. <laughs> okay, it must just be on my end, but I just heard him just like go crazy. That's insane. <laughs> um, so the next one is the one anyway, one of the so yeah. Flagler's ghost is caught. Yeah, Flagler's ghost is supposedly walking around. But it's not just him that's walking around. Flagler's second wife, Ida, Ida Alice Flagler, was apparently a little bit uh ooh. Mm. I mean, if someone is on as many meds as I'm on, I can say she's a little mentally unstable. <laughs> I feel like that's that's Oof. okay, right? That's not uncouth to say. <laughs> but yeah. she had been committed multiple times to different sanatoriums, um, and she ultimately died of consumption, which was tuberculosis. It was TB. So um, Ida was also said, typically treated right by going air. to Florida. <laughs> Um, but she was said to have been driven mad by Flagler's uh, philandering ways. <laughs> Ew. Yeah. The man apparently had multiple mistresses, and her ghost is said to haunt the college and is oftentimes seen in front of a large painting of Flagler himself, staring at the image, seeming to damn the man. I'm just imagining seeing a ghost flips, flip a painting the bird. It's <laughs> <laughs> like standing there um, like... Arr. But it's not just her either. So there's another ghost that's supposedly one of the mistresses. Because Ida, she not just like she was like, I don't even know if I would say she was crazy necessarily. But apparently what was happening was uh, Henry Flagler was having an affair with an actress who was said to have died in the hotel. And apparently Ida would just constantly barge in on Flagler, grab his mistress, and hide her in a fourth floor room that was completely covered in mirrors. That's terrifying. Yeah. The room was, in fact, a psychomantium. It's a place designed to not only alter one's mood, but also to contact the dead. Which, oh my god! you know, it's, a, it's like having a Ouija board, right? But they built it yeah. into the hotel. Um, so Flakler <sighs> apparently loved seances too and ethereal arts. And one day the mistress had an experience in the room. No one knows what exactly happened, but she was driven mad. Now, have you heard the stories of these like mirror rooms? Yes. Like they're supposed to, there's a lot of supernatural stuff attached to that. Yeah. If you listen to like the No Sleep podcast, there's a lot of stories on there yeah. about it. It's called like what? Like the Devil's Toy Box or something? The Devil's Toy Box. That's it. Wait, did. Did another uh, podcast do that? Or to death did it. Did they do it? Yeah. So mm -hmm. mirror boxes are like not okay, right? Yeah. It's it a big deal. But after this, she was driven mad and she actually went and hung herself from a chandelier. Now, the one like there in the atrium? Yeah, that big chandelier in the atrium. Mm -hmm. Apparently. There's a picture of that on my Instagram. <laughs> there is a picture of that on your Instagram. I didn't um, know someone hung themselves from it. No, and why didn't that girl tell us that when we went on our tour? Or did she and I just forgot? Maybe maybe you don't tell 
unalive stories in a ghost story. <laughs> That's fair. No toaster bath stories. Um, so anyway, that room is now apparently used for like storage, uh, because of when they were repurposing the building for housing, students mm -hmm. wouldn't spend more than a month in that room. Is it still covered in mirrors? Well, no, they took the mirrors down. Okay. But they alleged that screams in the middle of the night would rock them awake and their beds would shake uncontrollably. Typical college experience. Yeah. So um let's see there's one more quote that i want to read and then i will be done all right so the only thing that scared me into shivers was a morning in november when i was showering and the door seemed to slam suddenly the light burned out and now everyone knew that you were probably the most vulnerable in the shower right mm -hmm. i mean yeah the student says i was petrified i jumped out of the shower ran the 12 or so feet to the door and ran out in my towel, quickly threw on a t-shirt, ran outside to the rotunda where we've been, mm -hmm. where all the lights were on, and no one seemed frantic about a blackout because it never happened. And it never happened again. But that was it. If you want a semi-active night, go sleep in room 300 in Potts Hall. No, thanks. <laughs> yep. So that is uh, Flagler College and very specifically the Ponce de Leon Hotel. It's a really pretty building, though. It is so pretty. And honestly, like, that whole town's haunted. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, very. But I think some of it goes back to them heavily colonizing it. Like, ow, sorry. Okay, I, you, I don't table. think it's colonizing it. Well. They bought it from the Spanish, who stole well, it to begin with. The Native Americans. <laughs> so, like... <laughs> But anyway, also, I, I think it goes back to this like weird obsession that everyone in the late 1800s had with ghosts. It's a Victorian thing. Yeah, like they were all obsessed with them. And look, now we got a bunch of 1800s ghosts walking around. I, I guarantee that's got to have something to do with it. I mean, think about a Christmas carol. It always comes back to a Christmas carol with you. Everything comes back to a Christmas carol with me. I really love it. <laughs> anyway, what's your story? Okay, so we're going to go to Miami for my story. That okay was very cheerleader. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. <laughs> um, no, so we're going to go to Miami, but not the one everyone's thinking of. <laughs> so Miami University, informally known as Miami of Ohio, or simply Miami, is a public research university in Oxford, Ohio. University See, was founded in... No, I was going to say, I know this place, actually. Yeah. One of my Most like, people, I think. favorite English professors in undergrad, her master's is from there. Yeah, I think most people in Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana know of Miami, Ohio. Miami of so, Ohio. Ohio. So the university was founded in 1809, making it the second oldest university in Ohio, behind Ohio University. Naturally. And the oldest public university. It's well known for its liberal arts education, offers more than 120 undergraduate degree programs and over 60 graduate degree programs within its eight schools and colleges in architecture, business, engineering, humanities, and the sciences. Which is what I've always heard. It's a big architecture school and a big education school. Hmm. 
Yep. I've never, I've, I don't know why, but I've never heard that. <laughs> my two references in my brain are English, and I just saw Miami of Ohio on someone's uh, CV because I'm on a search committee for an art professor, and they got their master's in art there. <laughs> Um, but so the Miami University campus is rich in tradition and legend stories, which are perpetuated by imagination from generation to generation of students. And this story is one such legend. So Ronald Henry Tamman Jr. was born on July 23rd, 1933 in Lakewood City Hospital, which would put him in his 80s if he's still alive today. That's not that old. He was a, no, no, no. He was from Maple Heights, Ohio, which is a working class Cleveland suburb where he and his family lived in a two-story colonial home. At Miami, he was a wrestler, a residence hall counselor, a string bass player in a college jazz band, and a member of Delta Tala Delta fraternity. Me too. Those four, those four descriptors and little else would be repeated in news reports for the next 60 years to sum up his character. So Ronald was the second oldest of five children. They included John, Ronald, Richard, Marcia, and Robert. Marsha and Robert were born much later than the others, so for a large part of Ron's growing up years, he was the middle child and upheld his middle child duties to the fullest extent possible. What is that? Whereas his older brother John was a little bit of a know-it-all, and his younger brother Richard was a rabble-rouser, always getting in trouble, Ron was the nice one, everyone's favorite. Couldn't be me. Couldn't be me as a middle child. No. One of his childhood friends said, if you had to choose between the three of them, everyone would choose Ronnie. I think everyone would choose my little brother. Oh, yeah, everyone would choose Jeffrey. Because <laughs> have you met me? I'm just too loud. Yeah. People who knew Ronald used adjectives such as handsome, nice, smart, and studious to describe him, with handsome always being at the top of the list. His movie star looks weren't perfect, though. He had a front tooth that slightly overlapped another, something he planned to have fixed one day, and he also had a cauliflower ear from wrestling. Which... Have you ever seen a cauliflower ear? They're gross. Dude, I, I go or I go. I went to Lindsay and I also work here. Wrestling's a huge sport here. And oh, they'll come into class and have it. Mm -hmm. Also, a bunch of theater majors were wrestlers at one point. So <laughs> it was just like really weird thing to see in rehearsal. So, but there's another thing that people would say about Ronald Taman that it was so unlike him to act dramatically or lose hope. He was a generally positive guy. That's why he was, in everyone's last mind, or everyone's mind, the least likely person to disappear. Oh, that's why he was in the newspaper. Duh. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? So nothing about Ronald Hammond's disappearance makes sense. He was one of the more level-headed, responsible guys people would have encountered at Miami. He was way ahead of his peers and many of the traits that mattered most on the road to success, uh, which is why he was interested to serve as a residence hall counselor to a group of freshman men. He was smart, but perhaps more than that, he was savvy, as witnessed by the fact he was one of the, one of the few students permitted to have a car on campus. Even at the age of 19, he knew how to work the system. When Ronald Hammond was last seen by his fellow residents of Fisher Hall, it was cold with snow flurries. Hardly an inviting night for a spur of the moment stroll. Here are the basic facts we know, gleaned from news accounts, other documents, including Dean of Men Carl Knox's notes, and interviews with people who were close to the action. On the weekend of April 17th and 19th, 
Ronald Tammond's roommate, Chuck Finley, was away visiting family in Dayton. Tammond, on the other hand, had other things on his plate. On Friday at about 8 p.m., he stopped at the home of Glenn Dennison to pay his car insurance. Which he had to go to someone's house. Well, it's the insurance agent's house. Okay. Because back then, insurance agents operated out of their house. Tamman stayed a little while to socialize, and Dennison later recalled that they discussed the campus house, the jazz band that Ron played the string bass in, and one of Ron's favorite topics. In those days, students often attended classes on Saturday, and according to Ron's schedule for the semester, he would have had an 8 a.m. math class and a 10 a.m. speech class. On Saturday night, he played a gig with the Owls at the Omicron Delta Kappa Carnival, a popular fundraiser. In a news article, Ron's brother Richard, who was a freshman at Miami that year, said he was with Ronald until 11 or 11.30. Another news article claims Ron then participated in a bull session at Delta Tau Delta fraternity that night as well. The next day, Sunday the 19th, several Tamman sightings were reported. During the window of 3 to 4 p.m., Tamman was seen studying psychology in his dorm room, Fisher, room 225, according to the Dean Knox's notes. In addition, he'd eaten in the dining hall sometime in the evening and sat at a table with other students as well as Ken McDiffitt, the recently hired head resident of nearby Collins Hall, who was later promoted to assistant dean of men. McDiffitt, dean of men? Before there were dean of students, there was a dean of men and a dean of women. Oh, 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 okay. Because mm-hmm. clearly, clearly, you couldn't <laughs> have a male dean of women or female dean of men. I, I really feel like it was probably more about the other. <laughs> yeah. McDivitt, who passed away in 2006, had told his wife Ruth that the conversation had been light and that Tamman was talking to the others about what else? The campus owls. They really like this jazz band. Okay. <laughs> I guess. At roughly 5.15 p.m., Tamman is spotted by a doormate, Richard Brennan, who lived across the hall from Tamman, and said that Tamman seemed to be acting normal. Two former Fisher Hall residents recall seeing Tamman wearing a towel and heading into the shower that day. Although they could never agree on the time, one said it was the afternoon, one said it was later in the evening after dinner. At about 7 p.m., Tamman's in the room 212 of Fisher Hall um, in good spirits. Uh, his friend Richard lived in this room. Richard um, said Tamman was helping him with some homework while their roommates were out for the evening. Late, Sometime later, it's not clear, Tamman told Titus he needed to do his own homework and walked down the hall towards his room. At around 8 p.m., Ronald was seen again, this time heading downstairs downstairs to obtain fresh sheets for his bed because someone had put a fish in his bed. I will murder someone. Yeah. I would, so, I, no, just no. After his disappearance, people wondered if this was the mafia leaving a calling card warning him that he'd be sleeping with the fishes. The mafia? Really? But... It was actually his friend Richard, who he'd just been doing homework with. So Richard so and Ronald like to play practical jokes on each other. Ronald had recently short-sheeted Richard's bed to get even. Richard had tucked a dead fish into Ronald's sheets. Ew. Yep. Also, imagine what that smelled like. Imagine what that mattress smelled like. Like, soaks in. Yeah, because they definitely weren't made like they are now. Right. So while Ron was retrieving the fresh sheets, Ms. Todd Hunter, the residence hall manager, remarked to him that he looked tired, 
to which Ron responded he was, and he planned to go right to bed. According to Dean Knox's notes, Ronald had indeed made up his bed because the mattress had new sheets on them, all except pu putting the pillow in the pillowcase. I hate doing that. I mean, just in general, I hate making the bed. No, it's like, it's a very specific thing. No, 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 no. I, I, I put all of my pillows in pillowcases. <laughs> yeah. So it's impossible to pinpoint an exact time, but sometime between 8 and 9 p.m., Ronald Hammond went off the grid forever. <laughs> I don't like this. Yep. There's something about someone missing that really... It could be all the books I've read. All those all those thriller books are always about people missing. This freaks me out. <laughs> so um, around 10.30 p.m., Chuck Finley, Ronald's roommate, re returned from the week his weekend away. He found the lights on, a radio plane, and an open psychology book on Ron's desk. Investigators said the book was open to a section on habits. Tamman's car keys were also there, as was were his wallet and most of its contents, including his draft card, driver's license, musician's union card, and other forms of identification. Whatever cash it had held, Finley estimated it was probably about $10 or $11 was gone. Tamman's car was in its usual parking spot, where his bass fiddle was in the back seat still. Bass fiddle. He left his high school class ring along with other belongings, but he must have held onto his wristwatch because it was gone. Other than that, other than what he was wearing that day, a tan sweater, blue pants, and a blue and tan checked, checked Mackinac jacket, all of his clothes remained in the closet. From the look of things, Ronald Hammond could have returned to his room at any moment. Maybe he had every intention of doing so, and something awful had occurred. But then again, maybe it was all by design. Like someone took him and, and did all that? Maybe. Uh, that, oh, I'm confused. We're going to get to theories here in a minute. Okay, good. So once all major parties have been informed of Tamman's disappearance, at least two large-scale searches and several investigations ensued. On Saturday, April 25th, more than 400 students, including Air Force ROTC members and Tamman's fellow or fraternity brothers, fanned out to search an extended area around Fisher Hall. The next day... 3,000 acres within Houston Woods, a state-owned forest that would later become a state park, were searched by prisoners in Ohio's honor camp. No sign of Tamman. The April 28, 1953 issue of the Miami Student Newspaper reported that a five-state alarm was issued and an investigation of all rail, bus, and plane terminals had brought, up, had brought to light no clues. Dean Knox was assigned the task of overseeing the university's investigation. Oscar Decker, who had just started his job as a police chief the prior month, led the Oxford Police Department's investigation. Other agencies to become involved were the Butler County Sheriff's Office and the Ohio State Highway Patrol, which we've had run-ins with them before. If you remember... We have? If you remember our story from Ohio University. Oh, yes. Okay. I Honestly, I thought you meant us personally, and I'm like, we've been to Ohio like twice? <laughs> yeah. No. Did they pull um, us yeah. over going to Ikea and I forgot? <laughs> You're going too fast towards those meatballs. I would, though. <laughs> so the FBI also stepped in. The first time was in May 1953 after Miss Tam... Or, sorry. How dare you not silence your cell phone during our recording? <laughs> da, da, da. 
So the first time was in May 1953, after Ronald's mom had contacted the Cleveland FBI or field office to let them know that Ron was missing and to request that a nose be placed in their missing persons files. They did so, and Ron's photo was distributed across the country. The FBI's involvement escalated after Ron violated the Selective Service Act when he was classified as 1A, but didn't show after not renewing his student deferment and subsequently not showing up for his physical or reporting for duty on August 25th. So, like, they're like, I just, we don't care you're missing. We care that you dodged the draft. Right, right. Because look at the time period. Yep. They're like, so with all those, we need that body. Mm hmm. So, with all those agencies racking up man hour upon man hour in search of Ronald Hammond, one would assume that there would be a good deal of bureaucratic paperwork documenting their efforts. Right? You'd expect there to be filing cabinets full of this stuff. Oh, yeah. You'd be wrong. In early 2008, when the Butler County Sheriff's Office reopens investigation to find out if the remains of a body found in Georgia in June of 1953 belonged to Tamman, the Oxford Police Department could provide no archival records on their original investigation. What were they doing, scribbling it down on napkins and then throwing it away? In fact, they only could find one page on Tamman, which was a traffic citation he had received a month before he disappeared because he ran a red light. This man's been missing for how long? Um, at that point, almost fifty-five years. And no one's like, and all they had was an old traffic know. ticket. All we got's the fact that you like, what did you say it was for? Anything like speeding or something? Uh, running a red light. <laughs> he ran a red light. Yep, that's that's what we got him on. But you know, he's been missing for fifty years. <laughs> Guess I don't. I paid matter. that ticket either. <laughs> <laughs> that's why they still have it. They want their money. All right. So Dean Knox's handwritten notes, which are housed in the Miami University archives, show the signs of a well-meaning administrator engaged in a harried attempt to delve into the nuances of Tamman's day-to-day life in hopes of finding a clue. To be assured, the job was not in his wheelhouse, though. Reading over the penciled in scribbles, one can picture him on the phone, trying to take down pertinent details such as names, figures, and places, while storing much of the explanatory background information in his brain. So most of the pages are cryptic, tough to decipher, and all but useless. Wonderful. The one person that took notes didn't take good notes. Yep. Um, before reopening the investigation in 2008, the Butler County Sheriff's Office had one letter in its Tamman file, an anonymous tip, from 2005 that offered few specifics and would have been impossible to pursue. The Ohio State Highway Patrol also produced no documents when a request was submitted in 2015. The FBI provided 22 pages in response to a Freedom of Information Act request, and thanks to a recent discovery of another possible file, more pages may be forthcoming. However, way too much has been destroyed at this point. Why is this not like an episode of Unsolved Mysteries? It probably is actually. There's there's like a whole group of amateur investigators looking into the disappearance of Ronald Hammond. I want to like bring this to, I don't know, Crime Junkie or the Murder Squad or someone and be like, Billy Jensen, help me. Ashley Flowers, help me. Because <laughs> I want to know. So, I want to know now what's going on. Yeah. Joe Sella, reporter for the Hamilton Journal News, wasn't, wasn't impressed by the manner in which the investigations were conducted early on. Naturally. Mr. Sella, yeah, Mr. Sella mused in 1976 that I can't say I've ever been happy with 
anything that's happened in the case because nothing's ever happened. I was going to say, how are you going to be happy or displeased when nothing's gone on? Right. So the earliest hypothesis from investigators was proposed in as early as April 24th of 1953 was that Ron had experienced amnesia and just wandered off, not knowing who he was or where he was supposed to be. With no history of any kind of situation like that. Yeah, I think the only thing, likely. yeah. So they rolled out felt they had already ruled out foul play, citing his wrestling credentials as evidence. They said that Tamman was rugged and strong and would have been able to take care of himself. As time wore on, however, some wondered if he had, may have simply walked away voluntarily. I just don't buy it. Yeah, I don't. Perhaps and the also, biggest like, I hate that narrative of well, he's strong, right? Like, dude. <laughs> That is not a good argument. Nope. Perhaps the biggest development in the case came at the end of June 1953 when Claire Spivey of Seven Mile, Ohio, came forward and said that a young man who looked like Ron had knocked on her door sometime around midnight on the same night that Tamman had disappeared. Seven miles, roughly 11 miles southeast of Oxford, though it's by no means a straight shot, especially on foot. Still, she seen a recent article about his disappearance and felt sure it was him. She was of also course, quite sure of the this date. This is only... before ring doorbells, right? She was also quite sure of the date in which it happened. She remembered telling the visitor about a bus that ran between Oxford and Middletown, and then finding out later that the route had been suspended that very night, April nineteenth. Oh, great! Which is weird, right? Like, of course, the one night he needs that bus, if it's him. So, of course. According to the earliest accounts, the stranger's questions to Mrs. Spivey were, what town am I in? Where will I be if I go in that direction, pointing toward Middletown? The stranger's short haircut and deep eyes were most memorable to her, as was his lightweight check jacket. He seemed a little embarrassed, she said, and there was a smudge of dirt or grease on his face, as if he'd been trying to fix a flat. Some people, such as Oscar Decker, believed wholeheartedly that it must have been Ron, and that her story fit the amnesia theory to a T while others, including Ron's brother Richard, noted discrepancies in her story and weren't convinced. Me either. Either, there's something that's not, I don't know, something doesn't sit quite right about that. And something and it, doesn't quit, sit quite right about this whole story. And well, you're, you're right. I also, like, you said that she noted that he, like, had smudges on his face or something, and I'm just, my first thought mm -hmm. is that if he does have amnesia, I don't think it's because of a car thing because his car was still on campus. Right, his car is still sitting outside Fisher Hall. So I'm like, did someone abduct him and did he get away? Mm -hmm. And then got lost. But then I don't know what happened to him after that because like, where did he go? <laughs> right, so two clues were brought to the public's attention 20 years after the fact. Naturally. Yep. So these are from Dr. Garrett Boone, a family physician and the coroner for Butler County, and H.H. Stevenson, Stevenson, a housing official at Miami. So in a 1973 article by Sella, that reporter, Dr. Boone said that Tamman had visited his Hamilton office on November 19th, 1952, five months before he disappeared, and Boone still had the medical record to prove it. But he proved he was there. Okay, so the one person who kept his records. All right. Tamman's visit, reason for the visit was to have his blood type tested. 
a request that Dr. Boone hadn't received from anyone else in his 35 years of practice. He just very randomly wanted to know what his blood type was. I mean, okay. I, I mean, I guess time-wise, that's weird, but... Yeah, like, why do you just randomly want to know your blood type? A positive, by the way. I, th I think that's mine, too. I don't really remember. H.H. <laughs> uh, H. Stevenson, who had known Ron and had granted him approval to have a car on campus, thought he'd seen Tanman in a hotel restaurant in Wellsville, New York, on August 5th, 1953, as, his, as he and his wife were returning home from a vacation. According to a 1976 anniversary article, Tamman's lookalikes were sitting. Tamman's lookalike, sorry, was sitting at a table with a group of men, and he was looking right at Stevenson from across the room. He was sort of looking right through me, Stevenson said. Unfortunately, Stevenson didn't say anything to his wife till after they'd left the hotel, when she was like, "You're stupid. Go back." Right, like he's missing. So, <laughs> yeah. So, like she immediately convinced him to return to see if it was him. And that group of men were gone. Both Boone and Stevenson have co had come forward early in the investigation with their information. However, university, official of university officials had kept the stories to themselves. Why? Yep. That helps no one. So when Fisher Hall was torn down in the summer of 1978, the debris was searched for any signs of Tamman's remains. Oh, they thought he might have been buried in the building? I guess. Um, but nothing was found. University officials did elect to save the door frame and the keystone from, from room 225, among other noteworthy architectural features. That feels morbid. Yeah, like, why the door frame? My only thought, like, if you kept the door or the lock in case, like, maybe you found his... Oh, wait, no, you said his keys were still... Were still there? Oh, never mind. No, yeah. and it doesn't make sense other than it's just this college being morbid. Yeah. Um, so that's pretty much where things stalled until 2008, when Frank Smith, Butler County's cold case detective at the time, turned up the heat. Mike Freeman, a fellow cold case detective in Walker County, Georgia, had contacted him to let him know about a murder he was trying to solve. The dead body had been found in June 1953 in a ravine outside Lafayette near US-27, and after Freeman had conducted some online research, he wondered if the body might have been Ronald Hammond. Basically, who else disappeared in 1953? Right. Smith and Freeman, along with Walker County Sheriff Steve Wilson, decided to find out if DNA technology could solve the two cold cases in one fell swoop. So Marsha Tamman, Ron's younger sister, provided a DNA sample for comparison. And on a Sunday, February day, sunny February day in 2008, the body was exhumed from an unmarked grave. All that was left of the dead man was several bone fragments, which were collected and transported to the Georgia Bureau of Investigation for analysis. Unfortunately, the DNA was not a match. And of course, everything goes to the GBI. Everything yep. goes to the GBI. That's yep. You hear it the on Ronald, every podcast. Yep. The Ronald Tamman investigation, though not officially closed, is dormant once again. No. So there are theories um, that I can hypothesize on. Um, well, actually, all my credit is to Jennifer Wegner. She is an author that has compiled a very th comprehensive blog on the disappearance of Ronald Tamman and is working on a book about his disappearance. We love um, true crime authors. <laughs> right. So the big theory, so there's two overarching theories. One is a little more like 
run-of-the-mill and one's a little more outlandish. The run-of-the-mill theory is that Ronald was failing his classes and was going to lose the ability to defer his draft service. Okay, so so they, they're just saying he's a, a draft dodger at this point. They're saying he's a draft dodger for the more spectacular purpose um, theorized that he might have been not straight. But wouldn't that get you out of the draft too at that point? No, well, yes, but not in a good way. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, that. Yeah. So unfortunately, so tracks. Yeah. Um, now I don't know what evidence exists to support that theory, but that is kind of the straightforward theory. The not so straightforward theory is that he had kind of identified that about himself and was receiving psycho or hypnosis therapy from one of the psychology professors. But you know, it's the 50s, so maybe. Maybe. Um, this is supported by the fact that his psychology professor lived down the street from his insurance agent that he visited that, the couple days before he disappeared. The psychology textbook, like... Right, all of that. those little pieces. Right. That goes on to say that he was easily suggested or easily suggestible when it comes to hypnosis. Like he was, some people are easier when it comes to being hypnotized than others. Mm -hmm. And basically to boil it down, the psychology professor might've handed him over to the CIA. To the C for what? This is right on like right before the MK ultra experiment started. Oh, this isn't that like a similar time frame. It's a Actually, little early, though, but that that seems like the theory I'd go with, though. Yep. I mean, that's just <laughs> I don't know that that tracks. Mm -hmm. And MK Ultra, like everything that's come out about that, is just real screwy. So, yeah. So something similar to that is the other like big theory. Hmm. Yeah, I have not done enough research on it to come up with like a theory or even like say this seems more plausible than the other, but I like that one. Let's go with that one. Still creepy. Still creepy. MK Ultra's creepy. creepy. Oh my god. Well, yeah. <laughs> hmm. But yeah. But yeah. So that is the story of Ronald Hammond. Oh my god. Now I want to know more about him. Yeah, there's a lot out there on him. Don't send me to a rabbit hole. I have a bunch of stuff to grade later. I can't do that. I can't rabbit hole. <laughs> rabbit hole. Rabbit hole. No. But if you've heard of Ronald Hammond or another creepy disappearance on your campus, let us know. Please. Please tell us yeah. things. <laughs> Shoot us an email or to creepycanvaspodcast at gmail.com. Or you can get to us on social media on Instagram and Twitter at Creepy Campus Pod. Yeah. Right? It is the same on both, right? Yes. Then my brain every did... week. <laughs> Ugh. I'm a mess. I'm a mess. I'm a mess. You can also find links if you want a rabbit hole yourself. We'll link to the blog on Ronald Tamman and the sources from Jerry's story as well on our pod page. You can find that in the links on our Twitter and Instagram. Yup. Lincoln bio. <laughs>
Okay. The best part is no one saw. Oh yeah, no one can see you doing books. the thing. <laughs> yep. right. I, I, I'm done. I'm out of. I'm out of things. I'm. I'm done. Yeah. All right. Have a good week, y'all, and we will catch you next time. Bye. Bye.